Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. That's, a, that's not our new theme music, by the way. We're very close to solving <laughs> the puzzle of our new theme music. Um, I'm guessing by what, like maybe winter 2019 should have it. No, actually, we're going to try out some new theme music, I think, next week. All right. So um, this is a great song, though. Um, all right. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm getting all distracted. Uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to do um, phone calls uh, and me and no guests, just like we did last week. Uh, so first of all, I'll give you the number, but don't call yet until you hear what I'm interested in talking about. And then you can call about something else. Uh, 860-275-726. They say 26. 860-275-7266. I'm very flustered today. 860-275-7266. You know, you know what it is? I thought about something really funny before we went on the air, and I'm still kind of laughing at it. But anyway, that's a good sign because for the most part, America is not thinking about things that are funny. America is not laughing. And that's where I want to start. Here's my basic premise. It's not that different from last week's premise, but I'll try to reword it a little bit. We're all crazy right now. I I made this point in the Matt Taibbi interview that we aired last week. The whole country is crazy and the whole country has turned into everything is Red Sox versus Yankees, right? You're on social media, which is actually a good place to be crazy and find other people who are being crazy in a very oppositional way. You're on social media and you say one thing and immediately 20 people just jump in and really toxically, angrily say another thing. And it's, you know, the the fights are internal. Uh, uh, they're kind of intramural and extramural. Uh, so you got Democrats, you know, who are fighting with Democrats and you've got Republicans who are fighting with Republicans and you've got Democrats who are fighting with Republicans and you've got people who don't know what they believe uh, fighting with people who do know what they believe. And it's not just on social media. I feel like everything is extended out to 130 percent of our normal emotional load, right? The normal set of things that we feel is now it, it, the needle crossed 100 percent a long time ago and, and is now bouncing around in that red area. So it's hard in that environment not to see everything as, well, I mean, it's maybe another way to put this would be there's a way in which we react to things, you know, or there's a series of choices about how we react to things. And then there are some instances where we have no choice because it's uh, the amygdala takes over. Um, The amygdala and its relationship with the hippocampus take over. And so we react the way a snake reacts when it gets stepped on. We just bite without thinking. And that's kind of where we are right now. So and now, uh, the things that I would like to link together, because I think they're kind of all in different ways, products of that way, that mode that we're all in. And I really do think it's a universal problem. It's not them. It's all of us. Um, the way that I can kind of link these things together, I think the firing, the dismissal of Father Pat Conroy as chaplain of the House of Representatives, Um, In some ways, the incel movement, which is this very strange, mostly online, dark web movement of angry, involuntarily celibate, and hence the name, young men, which seems to have had something to do with the mass killing in Toronto. Um, 
I think that's in there somewhere. But it's, what really strikes me as odd is that we are having a huge fight <laughs> for the last 48 hours about a comedy routine. Uh, the comedy routine was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The comedian was Michelle Wolf. Um, no relation. Uh, and she um, she did, you know, a- as is the way with this dinner. We should go back. And they say they call it the nerd prom in the sense that it's this kind of pseudo glamorous uh, affair for a bunch of working journalists who, you know, drink cold coffee out of paper or cups uh, on ordinary days and pick your own stereotype. Um, and, you know, celebrities show up and then there's a comedian. And I mean, there's been some talk. And Olivia Nuzzi from the uh, from New York Magazine, she had a little thread uh, on Twitter today pointing out that there's a cycle that goes on all the time, which is they announce they're going to have this thing. They book a comedian. The comedian gets up there and, as comedians tend to be, says transgressive and provocative things. Some subset of the audience has a conniption fit about this. Uh, and then there's discussion about never doing this again. And then six to nine months go by and everybody has forgotten about that and the cycle repeats itself. So in a way, we're in a loop we've been in before, although this does feel a little bit different. Reference my opening remarks because we feel everything at 130 percent right now. And probably also because Michelle Wolf is feeling things in a much more extreme way than, say, a Stephen Colbert was his year or a Seth Meyers was his year. Things feel to comedians more extreme. <laughs> um, now, we should also remember that this is not the first time there's been a problem with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Colbert's year was interesting. He appeared in character. His his character, this kind of Bill O'Reilly strutting knockoff, was a fairly new invention at the time. And a lot of people in the physical audience just didn't seem to get the routine at all. It's not a really hilarious group of people anyway. I mean, it's a bunch of people who take themselves really seriously, elite, you know, Washington press people and elite Washington staffers and U.S. senators and celebrities. Well, most of those people have no sense of humor about themselves or much of anything else. So people didn't laugh at Colbert. But then there was like this other part of the national audience that as the speech began to circulate on YouTube was laughing uh, in its own way. And then it was, is it 2011? I should have looked this up. 2011, I think, is, was the year that both Barack Obama, who proved that he seems to be good at pretty much everything. Well, he's actually pretty good at comedy. Uh, he got up. Uh, he did some material. Some of it was aimed at Donald Trump. Seth Meyers was the comedian of the night. He did uh, got up. He did some material. Some of it was aimed at Donald Trump. There's this theory, which I don't totally discount, that Trump felt so wounded, and he's easily wounded. He's very thin-skinned. He's certainly not comfortable with being the butt of jokes. That the Trump felt so incredibly wounded that um, it solidified his intent to run for president in the next cycle. If that's true, if that's even 30 percent true, that's a good argument for getting rid of the White House correspondence dinner right there. That's reason enough never to have it again. Um, but um, so fast forward to uh, to Saturday night uh, and we've got uh, Michelle Wolf up there at the podium. Um, and, you know, her material, as comic material tends to be, was stinging. She maybe went a few places that other comedians haven't gone. Uh, that can be debated. Um, let's hear her talking about Kellyanne Conway. Let's hear this little clip here. You guys got to stop putting Kellyanne on your shows. All she does is lie. 
If you don't give her a platform, she has nowhere to lie. It's like that old saying, if a tree falls in the woods, how do we get Kellyanne under that tree? I'm not suggesting she gets hurt, just stuck. <laughs> stuck under a tree. All right, so um, we, we actually had a spirited, this makes me feel good about America. We just had a spirited debate out in the WNPR newsroom about who, if let's say Jed Bartler was president and Gallagher was the comedian um, and did the tree joke, who, who would be funny to have getting stuck under the tree? I mean, from the White House staff. It has to be a White House staffer. If, if you analogize precisely, it might be CJ. And I don't, you know, I think a lot of people wouldn't think it was very funny if the tree fell on CJ. We talked about it a while. There were certainly a lot of people who wanted the tree to fall on Toby. But you can try this. This is something you can try at home. But, um, you know, I'm not here actually to pass judgment on Michelle Wolf's routine. I think it would have been fine, absolutely fine in a comedy club. Uh, it would have been really great material. Um, I think it would have been fine as the opening monologue for Saturday Night Live. I think in a com comedic context, it would have been fine. The problem with this thing every year is that it gets scrutinized in a different way. So the, every year, as, as Olivia Nuzzi was pointing out, there's some kind of freak out, bigger freak out this year maybe. Um, I, we've got a tweeter, Kathy, saying maybe there's sexism involved. Male comedians have done the same thing in, in previous years, and now all of a sudden there's a problem. Well, there have been problems other years, but I mean, there's more of a national conversation going on this year. I, I will say that uh, in an answer to Kathy, it seemed as though an awful lot of the people in the press corps who were having the freak out were women. In other words, Maggie Haberman and Andrea Mitchell and people like that were very uncomfortable with Michelle Wolf's routine, which I, I'm not saying that that refutes the idea that their sexism comedy is a world that is laced with sexual double standards. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if, if there were uh, some element of that. Um, but I think the bigger problem is can we have these kinds of of comedic conversations in this environment without the world waking up in a worse state the next day. That's my only, I don't really, by the way, let me give out the phone number now. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Because, I mean, there's all kinds of arguments that come out at a time like this. One of the arguments is, well, Donald Trump says stuff much worse than this all the time cruder things, more sexist things, more, I mean, if in fact, for example, you may, the argument could be made that it was wrong to make fun of Sarah Sanders's eye makeup. Um, well, I mean, Donald Trump talks about, he fat shames, he fat shames Miss Universe, you know, so I mean, in, in an environment where that is the case, um, you know, why single out this comedian? Um, the counter argument to that is I, I just don't think we're going to have a lot of successes by trying to get down to the level of Donald Trump. I, I think ultimately our civic culture is not going to be improved if we test everything that way. Well, Donald Trump does that. So why don't we do it, do it too? Um, but I also I also get what I'm hearing from a lot of my friends over on the left, which is we're angry. This was an angry routine. It was very satisfying to us. It, it's 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 great to hear somebody saying this stuff. Although I, I react to that a little bit by saying I don't think, I don't feel as though I have been living through three years of soft language, you know, I mean, on either side. I, I think each side has felt pretty clear and pretty um, comfortable 
swinging hard at the other side for the last two or three years. So I, I didn't really feel like I needed on Saturday night to finally hear somebody use very visceral, bitter, toxic language about the other side. Uh, and by the way, once again, I am not judging Michelle Wolf's uh, routine. I bet you if I saw that as the opening routine on Saturday Night Live, uh, I would have loved it. I'm sure if I saw it in a comedy venue, I would have loved it. Uh, I'm just wondering, given how crazy we are right now, whether it even makes sense to have anybody, any comedian at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, given how messed up we are right now, they'd be better off having, like, Kenny G play for, you know, 30 minutes and just have everybody kind of doze off a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, there's any kind of comedy that works right now in this country. So um, let me uh, go to the phones here. Our numbers, I'm going to sort of expand that into the Father Pat, Pat Conroy story, into the incel story. I think it's all part of a culture right now where we're very uncomfortable with each other's thoughts and with each other's language choices and, and, and which, with each other's personal choices. And we go f- pretty quickly from a feeling of discomfort into what Caesar Milan used to call the red zone with dogs. That's what the dog tries to bite you. Uh, all right. Uh, let's go to the phones here. A lot of people calling in. Here's Patrick in West Hartford. Hi, Patrick. You're on the air. Hi, uh, Colin. Uh, just a comment, I guess. Um, isn't uh, by now the uh, comedian's routine at the uh, correspondence dinner uh, really uh, for the broadcast audience and not for the audience uh, that's sitting there in the room? And it's long since, uh, uh, you know, been an opportunity for the comedian rather than uh, any comedy amongst the people in the room. I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I get what you're saying. Um, I've also heard the argument, though, that you don't have to worry about the heartland because the heartland doesn't even know that this this routine is happening. They don't ever see it. They don't have any experience of it. Because I was discussing that today uh, online or with emails with some people I know. And I was sort of saying that, you know, on the one I I thought that a a moment like this and like doing this stupid dinner at all is bad for the profession of journalism. Because, look, what do you get out of it? Well, on the one hand, you uh, over on the right or in the American heartland, you have an existing distrust of and contempt for the press exacerbated by jokes about trees falling on Kellyanne Conway and and how Sarah Sanders's eyes look, et cetera, et cetera. And then over on the left, you have people getting mad at the journalists because some of them seem uncomfortable with this comedy. Uh, and so uh, comedy with a D to continue with your um, making of distinctions. Um, and And so somebody said to me, well, I mean, nobody in the heartland even knows this thing is happening, which might be true. I mean, if anybody's watching it, Patrick, I'm thinking it's a pretty small audience. People who know about it secondhand, who find out about it the next day, who hear, as you're going to hear on this show, two or three clips. That's a bigger audience. That's the audience. Not not the live broadcast audience, but the people that see it after the fact. Certainly Colbert's speech was circulated all over the place afterwards, and I think people who would not ordinarily see it wind up seeing it on YouTube and stuff like that. All right, let's go to, I want to go to Mary. I want to get a woman on the air, ASAP. Here's Mary from Southbury. Hi. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on your show. Sure. Um, So I've got a couple points. One is um, my, my partner was watching it online yesterday morning, and I came in we thought it was hysterical and we thought it was very truthful. Um, we watched it twice. Uh, I, we understood that it was very, very edgy. Um, I think it really, to a great extent, 
there is a sexist reaction to it. I think if a man had done the same thing, I really don't think it would have um, had this level of response. And then the the other thing um, is, as a Democrat, uh, progressive, a gay woman, um, I feel like I'm, my my group, my demographic, is constantly being bullied. Um, and there's almost we're, we're held to a different standard if we try to fight back or to retort we're wrong if we're quiet we're complicit and you know i'm a former teacher and i feel like we're giving the the bully free reign here and in my opinion all michelle wolf did was she put it back on them and um you know, I'm I'm sorry about what you're saying about, like, I, I agree with you. It is us and them, and I, I don't want to really contribute to that, but I feel at a loss of what we can do to have a voice to get the truth out there. Let me just challenge you about one part of this, okay? So sure. let, let's say that we watched a week of Seth Meyers, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Trevor Noah, um, I'm just running through some choices here. I mean, you can sort of see where I'm going, you know, and pick th- two or three other people who do stand-ups every night. Do you think that we wouldn't hear a lot of terrifically negative stuff about Donald Trump, imitations of him, character of oh, Stephen Colbert, characterizations of him? I mean, do you, do you, you actually sort of feel that the bullying is all on—I mean, bullying is the wrong word, but do you, do you feel as though— I feel like I live in a constant torrent of exactly the kind of stuff that you're you're saying needs to get started. It seems to me, Samantha B. I'll throw her in there too. Uh, I feel like it's going on all the time. You know, I don't think Michelle Wolf did anything new. Uh, I mean, comedy, really kind of angry, bitter comedy about Trump, seems to be almost the equivalent of comedy at this point. I'm barely aware of any other kind of political comedy. Right, and I would agree with that. I mean, believe me. As a teacher, one of the things you do besides your subject is you you try to help establish a sense of community. Mm-hmm. And we are in a brutal time, um, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things about the correspondent dinner is that was a captive audience, right? Um, whereas you can choose to turn on Colbert or, or Myers or Samantha Bee. And I do sometimes when I watch those shows, I do think they are very spot on. I'm not saying that I think they they accomplish anything other than maybe catharsis um, because we are so far down the rabbit hole. And um, one more thing I would just say is Donald Trump is a symptom of something that has – this didn't just happen, right? This, this has been going on for decades with this move towards – the dog whistles, the homophobia, the, the whatever, and he he's just uh, opened that Pandora's box or let that the people in that Pandora's box out and okayed it. And I just want a way, way to get my voice across because I just think what goes on with Donald Trump and the people that support him is, is basic indecency. And while indecency back doesn't necessarily solve anything, um, we do have to hold a mirror up to them. We we do have to reflect them, and whether that gets anywhere, you know, is is maybe not not going to happen. But all right, well, listen. Thanks for your call, Mary. I enjoyed talking to you. You got a great show. Okay, thanks. Bye bye. Um, let me read a tweet because this is something that kind of bothers me a little bit here. Uh, this is Liam tweeting. 
Uh, oops, yeah, I hate it when it does that. Um, <laughs> I have to scroll. All right. Uh, sometimes it's not just a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of the real Donald Trump and his uh, minions lying, but the lazy media not calling them out in the name of balance. See, I have a real problem with this one. Uh, I mean, I really do, Liam. Um, I've said this before. I, I said it during the Matt Taibbi conversation. I don't know if it's one of the parts that got on the air. I didn't hear the final edited product. But look, there's you, if you're going to talk about the mainstream media, the MSM, you kind of have to talk about it in two parts. So you've got, you know, Jeff Zucker and, and Leslie Moonves and, and I would throw Joe Scarborough in there. People who are kind of cynically making bank off of this phenomenon, right, who, who see uh, what who saw what happened. Uh, during 25 and 2016 as an opportunity for ratings, for money and stuff like that. But then you've got the press, the working press. And and, and I sort of do object to this lazy media stuff. I mean, a lot of the people sitting in that room on Saturday night were people who worked basically 530 or so days with little or no break during that campaign. And they challenged everything that Trump said. The fights began they began right at the beginning when Trump would exaggerate the size of the crowds at his rallies. They would fact check them. And I'm talking about mainstream media, whether it's NBC or The New York Times they or Jake Tapper. They would fact check him. He'd then go nuts. They'd be at the next rally surrounded by 3,000 people that Trump was then going to say were 9,000 people. Uh, and Trump would single out whoever had fact-checked him the hardest. And, say, and he'd say, she's right over there, lying Maggie Haberman, you know, little Katie Tour right over there. The crowd returned. And this went on for hundreds of days. And it wasn't just about fact-checking him about crowd size. It was fact-checking his ideas, like the Muslim ban when it was announced, fact-checking his behavior, uh, challenging him about figures, numbers, and facts. This was a constant effort by the press, and a lot of people threw not only their weight into it, but their safety into it. They had stuff thrown at them at rallies. They, they got death threats that required Secret Service protection. Um, if they were Jewish or had Jewish-looking or sounding surnames, they were subjected to barrages of ugly, toxic, anti-Semitic emails uh, and, and, and social media interactions. This is all just in the business of doing your job. And the harder you did your job and the more you challenged him, the more he would try to drive his supporters up against you, against these reporters. And I don't know of a reporter who backed down from any of that, in the face of any of that. I'm very proud of my profession. I don't think my profession is lazy. I don't think the media is lazy. If you think you know about factual inconsistencies and lies that Donald Trump has told, if you think you know about his crude behavior, his misbehavior, it's because the press tracked all that stuff down for you. So I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, look, there's ways in which the press can be blamed for overemphasizing um, Trump's candidacy, for disproportionately covering negative stuff about Hillary Clinton. I get that whole critique, but I don't think you can. I, I, I don't think you can shortchange the kind of valiant effort under really difficult circumstances. Not difficult circumstances like Turkey, where they put the cuffs on you. But as close to that as we've seen in America, this being a regular campaign reporter for hundreds of days was not only psychologically and emotionally harrowing, but physically dangerous. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I reject that kind of glib right off. Sorry, Liam. Anyway, I want to take a quick break here. We'll come back. We've got lots of phone calls on the board. Let's keep talking about this. Well, there's no escape, there's no escapes. So just suck up and 
All right. We are back, uh, and we are happy to talk to you. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because like, I would have been happy just having the conversation be about which member of the staff on West Wing would it be good to have a tree fall on. But that's clearly not going to happen. There are much more important things to talk about here. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. And I do want to say, I, I don't want to make this all about the White House Correspondents' Dinner Michelle Wolf routine, because really, I think that's just a surrogate. Uh, I think it's a stand-in for a, a bunch of other things. It's a stand-in for how completely crazy we feel all the time right now. So that, you know, the more extreme somebody's language is on our side, the happier we are. Uh, and we get correspondingly freaked out by even comparatively anodyne language from the other side. And it doesn't make any difference which side uh, we're on. I, I think that's sort of like it's everybody now. We really are all bozos on this bus together. And we have to think about what it means right now to be the specific kind of bozos uh, that we are. All right. Here's Dan from Woodstock. Hi, Dan. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, I'm pretty distraught over this administration and Trump. Um, and I have been watching all of the late night shows and MSNBC and, you know, all of the media that, you know, that I trust and believe in besides WNPR. Mm -hmm. um, but here's where I'm thinking. Here's where I'm going now. I think that all of this negative press and all of this negative attention that Trump is getting from the media, I wonder if it's making his policies worse. I wonder if he's, if he's bringing in terrible people to do terrible things to our environment, to our social services, social safety net, and so on and so forth. I just wonder if it's making him meaner. I think, first of all, it's a great thing. First of all, I applaud you for thinking, which is you know, like uh, it's increasingly hard for Americans to do that amidst all the noise. You're thinking in a really interesting way. Um, and we're pretty sure this is John Hamm calling based on your voice. But um, um, but but nice alias, John, like you thought you were going to fool us by saying your name is Dan. Well, I want to respond to what Dan said, because I think this it's yeah, I mean, if we're all bozos on this bus, by which I mean we're all in this extreme state of excitation where's the, where there's this feedback loop of very visceral, highly emotionally charged dialogue, if you could even call it dialogue, um, flying around America, it's probably the case, as Dan or John Hamm suggests, that Donald Trump is not immune from this. I mean, Donald Trump is not an un untinctured or un, untainted by it. So, yeah, I'm sure there are days where he, like, you know, maybe people throw... I'm sure he doesn't watch Samantha B or anything. Why would he? He's just gonna, it's just going to be painful for him. He's very thin-skinned. But to whatever extent this stuff gets to him, gets back to him, it gets to him, and it probably does make him meaner. <laughs> but, see, that's the problem. See, this is the... The problem is, we... I think... I got into some conversations with people about this on social media. You know, you can go Martin or you can go Malcolm. And right now, nobody wants to go Martin. Everybody wants to go Malcolm. Um, and I'm not really ultimately sure that's going to produce um, a, a restoration of our civil society. But what do I know? Um, all right. So I think I'm supposed to go to let's see what celebrity is using a fake name this time. Craig from Woodbury. Hi, Craig. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Thank you for okay. taking my call. I want to applaud practically everything that the callers and you have said. A couple points I want to make, though, is that I think Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Huckabee Sanders are nothing short of professional liars. 
And if someone calls them out for that because, you know, their work is uh, masking and giving permission for people to be more bigoted, you know, I really don't feel sorry for them, even if uh, Michelle Wolf did go slightly too far. I also think that she was really out there to criticize um, other people besides just them and the Trump administration. I think she was criticizing Republicans for their inconsistent, incomplete sense of morality. That, you know, Trump does such horrible things. And, uh, you know, because um, they want, you know, the people that voted for him uh, want to desperately get rid of, um, you know, abortion and they want to uh, pay less taxes. They are perfectly satisfied to stomach all of the abhorrent behavior that Trump exhibits all of the time. And I think that, you know, that sort of complicit uh, uh, daily uh, behavior is something that ought to be called out and excoriated. All right. Yeah. Well, first of all, Craig, thanks. Thanks for your call. Um, I I think it is called (laughs) excoriated, like all the time. I don't think that's really been... I mean, I think it's been done and been done effectively. I'm not really sure that it's making the big difference. Can I just want to say one thing about Michelle Wolf? I don't have any real problem with Michelle Wolf's comedy routine. And I also don't think that Andrea Mitchell should be calling on Michelle Wolf to apologize. First of all, if you're a comedian and you're worth anything, you never apologize. Comedians don't apologize, and they shouldn't apologize. Look, White House correspondents, you hired a comedian to come and make fun of the political establishment. That's what she did. I don't have any problem with what she did. And as I say, if she did it in a comedy club or a comedy venue or an HBO comedy special or the opening monologue for Saturday Night Live, I don't think there'd be any conversation to have. I don't think it went too far at all. Uh, I don't think comedy can go too far. I almost don't think that. The problem is that this isn't really a comedy venue. You know, it's like a, a place where our already overworked political attitudes get kind of worked up and exercised all over again. Uh, It's not you can't just we can't live by the live and die by the laws of comedy. It's more than that. All right. Here's Will in Mansfield. Hi, Will. Hey, Colin. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. So kind of to take you back to what you started with and get off uh, the correspondence dinner. I like what you were saying about is it something about where we're at culturally right now? And what got me thinking about is if you remember the old Dean Martin celebrity hosts. And the jokes on there could be racist, they could be sexist, uh, they may know, uh, uh, they, they didn't refuse to, to joke about Martin's alcoholism. And, and when you think about the time that that show was on the air, that's the civil rights movement, it's the women's equals rights movement. I'm curious what people who lived during that time and were from those groups felt about that kind of comedy then, and what kind of responses they felt they would want to give to it. Right. Um, just a couple of thoughts about that. Um, first of all, just because somebody else will get all want to set the record straight. Dean Martin was actually kind of a light drinker who famously wanted to retire to his hotel room with a glass of milk. The alcoholism thing was sort of a shtick. You know, it's kind of part of his his uh, entertainment persona. I don't think we can go back or should go back to that world. I know what you're saying, which is that Rickles would get up at a roast, you know, and, and rip everybody to shreds and make fun uh, of uh, of stereotypes about black people and Jews and Puerto Ricans. And and then at the end, he'd hug everybody and, you know, and everybody would laugh. And, you know, the days when that was an even I'm not sure that was ever a good idea. 
but the days when it was possible are over. And and I think the days of people thinking, well, in this context, I probably should just sort of laugh along with everybody else and put up with it. I, I think those days are over, and it's probably a good thing that they are. Um, I, I, I do think that what's happened, I wouldn't want to go back to that stuff, but I do think we're living in an era where because sensibilities are so keyed up that, I mean, you know, people like Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld say they won't play college campuses anymore because people aren't, they won't laugh at anything. You know, everything is potentially serious. Um, I'd love to get away from that anyway. All right. I want to get, uh, I want to make sure we're not all male here. Here's Nan in Woodbridge. Hi, Nan. You're on the air. Hey, how are you? Thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you. I hope you're driving safely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to say you haven't talked to a poet yet or a lawyer. The 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 joke that made such a splash, it culminates. I mean, the symbolism there is it like culminates in the with eyeshadow from this basis of a compliment, which is you are so good. Like she's the mage who is used executed her skills so well and and this is like the the stereotypical image of you know hitting something with a magic wand and turning it to ash well i i look forward to your uh academic article in the journal of american humor and ethnology uh on possible interpretations of the comedy of michelle wolf vis-a-vis sarah sanders and i get what you're saying too you know, I mean, I, first of all, as I say, I am neither here to bury Michelle Wolf nor to praise her. I, 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 I thought everything she said was well within the limits of comedy. The problem is that it's just not precisely exactly a comedy venue. So, um, producers, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about what if we took a break here? Does that make sense? What if we take a break here? We can sort of recalibrate a little bit and try to figure out what we're going to do here. we got a lot of calls coming in. Let me give out the number, 860 Two seven five seven two six six. You want me to take Achilles first, and then we'll we'll go to the break. Okay, they like that idea better. I could tell. They don't say a lot in there, but they give me body language. And I was getting the Betsy Kaplan resting body language. No idiot, go take one more phone call. Uh, thing. That's what was happening. All right. Here's Achilles in West Simsbury. Hi, you're Hi, on the air. Colin, how are you? Good. I'm calling because I'm going to provide a, a rule of thumb that I find helps me in dealing with difficult people. Never argue with the scoundrel. He'll drag you down to his level and beat you with experience. And I think that points to my criticism of the Wolf presentation. All that stuff was funny on Saturday Night Live or somewhere else, but not at the correspondence dinner. Rather an approach like Michelle Obama argued, when they go low, we go high. That might have helped a great deal more. And that's my comment for the afternoon. Right. Well, that's a good comment. Go over to Flamig Farm, get yourself some eggs. Uh, but right now, we're going to take a break. I mean, that's a good comment. I mean, it's hard to do comedy that way. Comedy typically doesn't go high. Um, there, there are some ways that it can and occasionally does. Uh, but comedy basically, comedy for the most part, imagines the world the way it should be. And, and does it ever really say that? It's always implied. Here's the way the world should be. A world governed by values like courage and generosity and honesty. And then they say, here's the way the world is. And and the, the comedy often exists in the departure 
from those core values that we presumably have. One of the struggles with comedy these days is our core values are, are eroding so bad, so badly that it's kind of hard to make sure you even understand, you know, what that tension is you're talking about. But that's why it's hard to go high in comedy. Comedy is so often about an implied world of what we should be and an understood and palpably felt world of how things really are. Uh, and it's never as good. All right. Now let's take this break. I think I can be permitted to take a break here. Can I? Can I? I hear music. I sympathize with my cousin Michelle. I still remember my comedy set at the Middle Earth Press Club. I don't want to say that Gandalf is old, but he keeps asking them to turn up the heat at the cracks of doom. Hello? Is this thing on? But seriously, it's not that elves are boring, it's just their favorite comedian is a tree. Anybody? Hello? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish doesn't think tuna jokes are that funny. The part of Bill Curry was played by Shecky Roosevelt. On tomorrow's show, our salute to swamps. What is it with these orc supermarkets? They take your... Never mind. And now, back to Colin. Well, I think the Middle Earth comedian concept is funny anyway. All right, so um, let me say a couple of things, and then we'll get back to the phones. Um, a lot of people calling in. Ruth, David, Paul, Kyle, John. Try to get to as many of you as we can. Anybody else who calls up at 860-275-7266. First thing I want to say is, you know, we started doing this on Mondays, and I don't think that it's entirely solved all of the problems that I want to solve, but then it's probably not realistic to suppose that that would be the case. And some of it starts with, like, I just feel sometimes even that, that I am, okay, I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. I was actually doing something around the house, but I was thinking about this radio show, all the radio shows we do, and I was thinking about my newspaper column, and I was thinking about the class that I, I was teaching in the political science department, uh, which is about political journalism, and I suddenly thought, you know, I bet you Pablo Neruda ever, never thought about anything like this. This is starting to sound like a Jonathan Richmond song. But I'm thinking, I bet you Pablo Neruda was thinking about like really beautiful, important, vital, close to the bone things, right? Because poets do. They think about the most vivid thing in front of them, which to them is the most important thing. And 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 they might be right. You know? <laughs> or it's kind of like why I enjoy listening to Krista Tippett's show on being, you know, because it's like they're talking about something else. Yeah, she does. She has a poet and she has a physicist and she has a theologian. And it's kind of like they're just talking about stuff that really seems important in a much more transcendent way than all this stuff that we're just constantly churning over. So anyway, that's why I started thinking about maybe tinkering with the format of the Monday Scramble a little bit. And that's why we're doing this. Now, to that end, I want to add one more element to this conversation, which is not to say that we can't take more calls or that we won't take more calls about the White House Correspondents' Dinner, because that's fine. But I was sort of thinking that there's a weird mirroring, reverse mirroring or something, that, that goes on when you think about the dismissal uh, of the Jesuit priest uh, who is the chaplain of the House of Representatives. Paul Ryan, the speaker, seems to have, well, he didn't seem to have, he seems to have ordered him to resign. He did order him to resign. And we don't know absolutely for sure, and you should read Gail Collins' excellent column about this. We don't know exactly for sure why he was told that he had to resign. But we think, well, 
everybody seems to think, they tell us, uh, that it had something to do with this prayer. Let us pray. God of the universe, we give you thanks for giving us another day. Bless the members of this assembly as they sit upon the work of these hours, of these days. Help them to make wise decisions in a good manner and to carry their responsibilities steadily with high hopes for a better future for our great nation. As legislation on taxes continues to be debated this week and next, may all members be mindful that the institutions and structures of our great nation guarantee the opportunities that have allowed some to achieve great success while others continue to struggle. May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. May your blessing, O oh God, be with them and with us all, this day and every day to come, and may all we do be done for your greater honor and glory. Amen. Well, you think Michelle Wolf was offensive? You think she went too far? You can't have people saying stuff like that, right? I mean, that's just way beyond the pale. So, yeah, we live in an era. <laughs> we live in an era where a candidate can have a tape surface that has him talking about uh, grabbing, you should pardon the language, but grabbing the pussies of, of unwilling, uncooperative women, and he can get elected president. But football players get in trouble for kneeling, and priests get in trouble for praying. <laughs> That's the place we've come to. Now, I know, I understand that there's some political commentary, if you want to call it that, embedded in that prayer. Although, as Father James Martin said uh, about this, you know, if you find the scripture troubling, that's good. You're supposed to find it troubling. Jesus was a revolutionary. You know, Jesus's ideas about economic justice were revolutionary. Um, Jesus was closer to Bernie Sanders in his attitudes about money and economic justice than he was to any other politician on the scene that I can think of right now. So it's like... <laughs> <laughs> you fired somebody for that, if that's the reason. Now, Gail uh, says that there are some other counter-narrative theories, including the fact that there's just a lot of Protestants uh, in the in the Tea Party and the kind of Republican factions within Congress, and they didn't want to have a Catholic priest. They wanted to have somebody more like them. Could be. I, but I kind of feel, particularly because supposedly Paul Ryan said, hey, Padre, you got to keep politics out of your prayers that it's pretty clearly this, you know, and, and the notion, I mean, this is what I mean by the fact that we're so keyed up, including Paul Ryan, that we can't stomach hearing things that jangle against the way that, you know, our wire is quivering. I don't know, this may, that may be a rather tortured metaphor, but you see what I'm saying. Everybody's string is so tight right now that if you pluck it, it just vibrates in this very, very crazy way. So, Paul Ryan's solution was to fire the priest. <laughs> um, so anyway, yes, that's the world we live in right now. Football players get in trouble for kneeling. Priests get fired for praying. But eh, <laughs> there are other sectors of the world where you can do pretty much anything you want. Uh, all right. Um, 860-275-7266. 
Uh, I'm trying to see who they want. I'm going to go to Kyle right now. Uh, here's uh, Kyle from Hampton. Hi, you're on the air, Kyle. Hey, Colin. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I just had one comment that I think applies anthropologically here, and that is the Correspondence Center is about as close as we get to the gesture in the, in the courtroom or in the royal you know, space, um, which is normally a, a space of mirrors where the politics kind of echo back and forth with each other, and the gesture is allowed to be a little crazy and to make some humor. Sometimes that's a place of dissent. And I don't forget the—I forgot the comedian's name— there was one that made a comment, a critical comment to Obama during the correspondence dinner about drone strikes. Um, was it Lormier? I don't remember who. But that was still done in a palatable way because he was operating as jester. Mm-hmm. He was still in support, so to speak. And I think one of the reasons why the correspondence dinner is so hyped up now is because the jester has become completely independent of the power dynamic. And so. Um, in many ways, the the representative of Trump has pulled out, which was a pretty, I think, on some level, sm- not smart, but it was uh, a genius move in some ways because it it takes him out of that those courts. So no longer is it a gesture hall; it's now the left just kind of elbowing each other, if that makes sense. So there's a power dynamic here that I think we can't ignore when we're talking about do comedians go too far? Uh, they're they're stepping into a gesture position. Right. I would agree. First of all, it's a very smart analysis, although I will say that we did a whole show about jesters, and it turns out that particular uh, model of kind of Lear and his fool, you know, the fool is the only one who can tell the truth to Lear, maybe less characteristic of jesters than we would like to think. Sometimes they were just people with uh, disabilities, essentially, who were there to be mocked or whatever. But anyway, but still, your analysis is really, really good. I think that you want to have a jester there who can needle Obama about drone, drone strikes. You want that, right? And then, as you also say, that that there's a corrective, which is that Obama gets up and he's a pretty good comedian. He does his own stuff and he pokes at whoever he needs to poke at. And because Donald Trump is too thin-skinned to put himself through this process, neither he nor a viable proxy was there on Saturday night. So that's all, that all gets messed up. I absolutely do agree that in the right circumstances, I mean, on the one hand, we have as I was saying before, a pantheon of jesters, you know, it's John Oliver and it's uh, it's Trevor Noah and it's Jimmy Kimmel and it's Samantha Bee and it's, you know, and we have a pantheon of jesters, but they're not that close to the throne most of the time, as Kyle is, I think, correctly suggesting. The White House Correspondents' Dinner, if it has any value at all, and I still question that, <laughs> I still question it, um, if it has any value at all, it's that the jester gets very close to the king and sometimes can talk directly to the king. So, um, all right. So uh, we're running out of time here. I could probably take one more call here. Uh, and I'm being told that I should absolutely talk to David in Killingworth. So first of all, my apologies to Eileen uh, and uh, Walter and Ruth and John, although I think John's point just got made anyway. Uh, and so here we go with David. David, you're on the air. Not only did he get elected president, but in our glorious history, the only one who never held or ran for office, the point being the disconnect. So my two cents is such that Aaron's going to be the governor, and it'd be nice if we started investing now, previous to the election, time in identifying the fundamental issues in front of us as a state, because we have a super mess which many of this ilk have contributed to with super genius. And it would be nice if the disconnect slowed down in our state and we could focus on really step-by-step the things we can do 
to get out of this mess. So I find it interesting talking about some dinner that nobody cares about, nobody talks about except for the same circle, when in fact the guy who's in charge reflects the times of the disconnect. All right. A little bit of a non sequitur. First of all, I feel obliged to explain to our listeners uh, the errand to whom he refers. Uh, I'm just sort of fleshing things out for you. The errand to whom he ref- refers is Aaron Stewart, who is the mayor of New Britain, uh, who is going to be a candidate for governor on the Republican side. Uh, I know Republicans, I mean Republican insiders, who are not sure that she's even going to get out of the convention with the requisite 15 percent of the vote. Anybody who tells you that they know who's going to be the next governor is kidding you. Nobody has any idea uh, any more than it turned out anybody had any idea who was going to be president of the United States before the two nominations were secured in 2016. So I can tell you that we'll be discussing this on Wednesday on The Wheelhouse. uh, And I can also tell you that we'll be doing much more extensive coverage here at WNPR of the Connecticut political state conventions than we typically do. Uh, And uh, we've got reporters going there. I'm going to be there. And uh, we're going to try to get this whole thing figured out. Uh, Meanwhile, thanks to everybody who participated. And uh, sorry to anybody I didn't get to. You can email me at Colin, that's just my name, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. And we'll, we'll be trying this in future weeks. We might even be trying it next Monday. You never know. So hang with us.